The preaching of God's Word is in Luke 27, and particularly verses 7 through 19. We've read, of course, the whole of this passage already, but to gather our thoughts a bit more to the text, notice that once requesting what's the sign, Christ warns them, and then He comes to exhort them toward the end of this passage. Notice verses 17, 18, and 19. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls. Remember in context that Christ's disciples and others around Him would have just heard that the temple was to be destroyed. Now, as even this chapter indicates, these are things that are according to what was foretold, that what is written might be fulfilled, as this chapter tells us. And so we saw last week, as you remember in our reading from Daniel 9, that there is an indication that the Messiah should be cut off, crucified, and yet he should rise again, and then, very shortly thereafter, the temple should be destroyed. Now, perhaps for our own sake, though it's not exactly a one-to-one comparison, we might think for those who are native to St. Louis or have lived here for some time, uh, the impact it would have upon us if we were told the arch was going to be destroyed. It's, as it were, a cultural image to our city. It stands out and it, as it were, bears testimony to the nation, perhaps even to many nations, our own place in this world. And so if we go on a journey and we're coming back and we see the arch, there's something in us that says we're home. Now, this is of a natural thing. Every city will have that kind of reality from a water tower to a hill, perhaps to a gravel road. There's that sense of belonging. And yet we have to realize that this is no mere sentimental statement of the destruction of the temple. Though there would have been attachments there because of various realities of the roots of people who have lived in the land to the site of the various times of pilgrimage throughout the year, having gone to Jerusalem, seen the temple, even witnessed the various sacrifices of the Old Testament economy. All of that is real. And yet, what is most fundamental is that the temple stood as a message and display of God's grace to His people. And so remember, the tabernacle which precedes the temple was so arranged and appointed by God as to instruct the Lord's people regarding many things. Fundamentally, that God was with them. This is my house. This is where I dwell. And then, of course, it makes sense. All of the ceremonies that took place because we have a holy God in the midst of creation and then far more wondrous in the midst of a sinful people. And so you have sacrifices and priests and all the offerings that would take place. And now they've just been told this is going to be destroyed. And it seems that it triggers a remembrance in the people. For you'll notice that when this is said, verse 7, they don't say, no, no, this can't be. But they inquire, when shall these things be? So it's not entirely foreign to them, though perhaps it had been overlooked. Remember that even more diligently than we in many ways, 
As a Jewish child, they were instructed in the reading of the Scriptures. The synagogues had the public reading as our gatherings do. Instruction and so on. The temple was this place of focus of the whole Old Testament economy because there was the manifest presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrificial system in its pinnacle administered. And yet, God had said long ago that it should be destroyed. And so the Lord now responds. And notice just briefly in the text, you have a section before us from verse 7, perhaps arguably verse 5, which we considered last time, through verse 19, which Christ takes advantage of speaking of the events that will take place between His time and the destruction of the temple. And within that, as He is always earnest in doing, He's not just reciting history. He's reciting and telling of what's to come, but doing so in such a way as to instruct and guide and shepherd His people. And so you'll notice in verses 8 and 9, Christ gives a warning. He warns them against deception. This is important because it's His disciples He's warning against being deceived. What does that mean, at least imply, but that we are able to be deceived. We're able to be led astray by charismatic people and great movements of men. And the history of the church testifies of this. And in our own day, we see the same. But notice Christ's words, take heed that ye be not deceived. This expression has much to do with a great diligence and watchfulness as a soldier on watch that you're to watch, that you be not deceived. It's almost astounding that ever this has come to pass, but Christ says that some will come in My name saying, I am Christ. And the time draws near. Go ye not therefore after them. Brethren, in our own lifetime, there have been movements even stemming from circles that identify as Reformed where people have made prognostications of dates and said, here's the end of the church. So leave the church and embrace My teaching. Flee and so on. And yet Christ is so clear of this, not only with reference to the destruction of the temple, but other places as well. Notice then, He says that in the time before the destruction of the temple, there shall be great upheaval in the cities and nations around them. And those of you who are students of history will know that from Christ's day until A.D. 70 where the temple was destroyed, there were great movements in the nations and wars and other things, earthquakes and such that were done, signs in the heavens and so forth that people took notice of. And yet notice what Christ gets at. This is something that we should realize in all the Scripture. The history of the nations is the backdrop of the history of God's people. And so all of this that's going on, notice He then zooms in and focuses on His people. Verses 12 and following. These great events will take place. He just barely notices that. But He now focuses on His people. But before all these, before all these great things of surrounding 8070 shall take place, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and into prison and so on. And we see this with exacting detail recorded in the book of Acts. And remember, the book of Acts is the record between Christ's ascension and the history that goes before the destruction of the temple. So when you read from Acts 1 through the end, 
you're reading the record of verse 12 and following. All that's taking place. So in Acts, you don't have the destruction of the temple recorded. You have rather the record of these particulars being demonstrated. But notice, he doesn't just record it, but then in verse 14, he exhorts them, settle it, therefore in your hearts, not to meditate, not to prepare studiously. What am I going to do if I'm going to get captured? Rather, he says, I'll give you a mouth. Isn't it a blessed thing of God that he acknowledges circumstances that could provoke us to fear? And yet he says, here's why you shouldn't fear. Remember, as he says earlier, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Oh, but what if I don't get food? What if I don't get water? What if I don't have a house or home? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Right? He acknowledges the circumstance of fear and yet says, if you're following me, these fears are unfounded. And so he, though, does go on to acknowledge the difficulty. Verse 16, ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. People speak of the great affinity of blood and how it's stronger than almost anything. Well, it may be stronger than almost anything, but it's not stronger than enmity with God. Enmity with God is stronger than blood relationship. And we see that here. Parents, cousins, aunts, uncles, kinsfolks, siblings, brethren shall be persecuted, betrayed, and some of you they shall cause to be put to death. And here's the fundamental reality. Ye shall be hated of all men, meaning of all sorts of men, for my name's sake. And again, we see that in the book of Acts. We see it play out in history beyond the destruction of the temple as well. But focus on this in verse 18, a proverbial statement. There shall not an hair of your head perish. Some people want to take proverbial statements so literal, and of course, it's not meant that way. People lose their hairs individually. It's a statement saying, you are under such providential care that not even one hair shall be missed by me. I know every circumstance surrounding you. I know every way that they're going to attack you. I know everything that you'll suffer. You have to remember that I am intimately, lovingly with and for you. So what's the exhortation? Verse 19, In your patience possess ye your souls. It's really this, verse 19, that is in many ways the focus of the whole of this passage. Because what Christ is doing is saying, don't run after in fear to false prophets and messiahs. Don't be overwhelmed with fear because you know that persecution will come. Don't flip out and start to say, all the earth is being destroyed. No, here's what the Christian and every Christian was to do. They were in patience to possess their souls. This word patience is a word that means to remain under. Some of you know arduous physical difficulty. Perhaps some of you have lifted weights and you know what it is to put weight on your back and to feel the weight pressing down upon you. 
Or perhaps others of you have done something so simple as to take a large object out of the back of a car and you have several steps to take and you feel the weight and your mind is playing that game on you. Do I just drop it or do I press on? Right? That enduring is the bearing under, the continuing under of the burden. That's what this word patience means. It means to bear up under the burden. Then it is possess. While you're bearing up under it, possess. This word is a word that has breadth to it. It means to obtain or purchase or to own. All of which we see this notion of you're the one who is to be, as it were, mastering your soul. You're to be constraining it, disciplining it, overwatching it, and caring for it while you bear up under it. All of which, of course, goes back to verse 8. Take heed. Be diligent in these things. Now, brethren, we have to note something. This is a historically precise message. Meaning, this is a message particularly for those who live between Christ at this time and the destruction of the temple, A.D. 70. And yet, as we'll see in weeks to come, seasons of persecution erupt beyond A.D. 70. And what's intriguing is, the same message is again and again repeated to the Christian. In other words, though there are peculiarities regarding what's going on between Christ's words here and A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple, the essence of the council is one and the same. It's that the Christian is to be diligent, watchful, and mindful to endure under the burden while possessing their souls, owning, as it were, their souls. All of this teaches us that when seasons of persecution come, as was experienced, and with great detail many times recorded in the book of Acts and other places beyond AD 70, when seasons of persecution comes... Christ's disciples are with diligence to maintain their souls before the Lord. Now, brethren, for a moment, realize this is largely antithetical to our culture. Because our culture is geared toward, it's actually, its message is one of indulge yourself, isn't it? It's one that says satisfy. Do you have a lust? Do you have a desire? Go out and pursue it. And it doesn't just have to be a sinful desire, though the world condones that. If you have any desire at all, go and do it. And if you have the impulse, go and pursue it. But you see, the Christian's message is one of self-denying diligence, keeping their soul. But not in some stoic fashion, whereby we see today, for instance, the message, because our world is so gone unto the self-indulgence, there are non-Christians who are now publishing books, bestsellers even, about discipline and the way of the Stoics. And all of this is going forth and it's capturing a groundswell of attention by the world. Worldly men are seeing the vanity of the self-indulgent lifestyle. It would be no surprise if in 10 years our culture has a massive switch from the indulgent and luxurious to the Stoic. I mean, think, for instance, of the tiny house movement. Think of all of these things that go on and is testifying of, you know, we're too indulgent. We need to simplify. Let's get everything simpler. There's benefit to that, of course. But Christ's message here is not about a worldly or carnal or Stoic discipline. 
It's rather a discipline orienting our souls to Christ, to keeping our fixation upon Him. That's the message. The message is not that we need to self-deny and so on, just as every other world does, but rather it's that we as Christians, His disciples, are to own our souls before the Lord, to keep ourselves in the faith, to keep ourselves in the exercise of love, to keep ourselves in the walk of holiness. And so when Christ says all of these different things, and He warns them against this deception, and He foretells them of this trial, and He's basically saying, you're going to be tried, notice, for My name's sake. He's not calling us to a generic self-discipline. There can be help in reading those works to see even how far a carnal man can go. But rather, Christ is calling us to possess our souls with reference to a security upon Christ, a fixation upon Him. Because the test is not about your luxury and self-indulgence. The test of the affliction is, is Christ worth it? Is Christ satisfying? Is Christ all? If your mom or dad turn against you, is Christ still sufficient for you? If your wife or husband should reject you or even haul you off to be turned over, is Christ still worth it? If you should be forced from home, as many of those in Jerusalem were, is Christ worth such sacrifice? If pains should be brought upon you, and brethren, they were brought upon them, As you read through the book of Acts, you see this with great clarity. Is Christ then worth it at that time? You will be hated of all men for My name's sake. In your patience, possess ye your souls. Well, consider three ways that it is we as His disciples and they as His disciples in that day were to maintain or possess their souls. One thing we can say is to open this exhortation that fundamental to all of this is faith in Christ. And so if we are to possess our souls, if they were to keep their souls, own their souls, preserve their souls, it mandated and demanded that they would maintain their souls in faith. The exercise of faith. This is something no Stoic, ancient, or modern has a message for. They could speak in generic terms, you know, whatever the greater, higher power is, unite yourself to that, get your why, what's your why, all this talk and so on. Okay, there's help in that and so on. But it all falls dramatically short of the Christian call. Because it's not about find your why, it's about Christ is your why. He is your reason. He's the one you're to trust and look to. And so if we are to keep ourselves, as many of our forefathers did, and is it not astonishing as you read through both the inspired record of the book of Acts, of what they went through, and as well even historical records beyond the book of Acts, as men, women, and children were brutally separated one from another and beaten and in persecutions after the destruction of the temple, we have, even in our own day, men, women, and children treated the same way. What was it that kept them? It wasn't worldly self-denial. 
It was first and foremost the maintaining of their souls in faith. It's interesting, you see threads throughout the Bible, and oftentimes you see them more pronounced in the various books uh, themselves. And so Luke is much about keeping our souls and maintaining them in faith. And you can see various foundations established. Luke 8, for instance, notice at verse 13. This is more general than that season of particular persecution which would come uh, after Christ's resurrection and before the destruction of the temple. But notice the parable of the four soils and you'll start to see a thread that's once again appearing in the passage before us. And so the seed goes forth, the Word of God. Verse, this is Luke 11, verse 8. The seed is the Word of God. And the four soils, the pathway, the rocky soil, the thorn-ridden soil, and the good ground. Notice particularly verse 13. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the Word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. See that there's an immediacy of some response, but there's a failure to watch over and to cultivate a true embrace of the Word of God. You'll notice how this is contrasted with verse 15, that on the good ground are they which in an honest or sincere and good heart, having heard the Word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So again, you can see this thread that Luke has brought before us from Christ's teaching. Ultimately, it's not Luke, is it? It's Christ that is putting this before us. That true faith is that which continues to exercise itself upon the Word of God. This is one reason that among any form of vibrant Christianity throughout history, the Word of God has been central. This is why when you have seasons of martyrdom, that the people who are willing to spill their blood and open their veins for the cause of Christ are a people who love the Word of God. And their commitment to that Word is not in their Word, but it is in their action. They love God's Word. They meditate upon God's Word. They sing God's Word. So you see this throughout the various ages of God's people. The delighting and singing the Psalms. You see this in the memorizing of Scripture. Now we can turn that into a mere discipline, and it needs to be a discipline. But we need to see that the discipline is to be a gracious exercise of the soul feeding itself. So for instance, we are learning our culture anyway, is somewhat learning, we trust, that it really doesn't serve the human body well to be undisciplined in diet. And so, with all the advances of artificial sweeteners and other such things, all these different tactics that people take and so on, there's the learning that, yes, there's help medically, but then it comes down fundamentally to how one eats and various other principles. Some have, of course, medical issues that need medical assistance. But no one is denying now that food either nourishes or, if abused, injures our bodies. And there's need to be discipline. Now, we're not talking about monkish discipline in our eating habits, but simple, common-sense approaches 
to eating in general well-balanced meals, and that serves our bodies well. It helps us. Well, the same is true for our souls. We can become over-rigorous, but brethren, that's not the fault of our era. Our fault today is not people being over-rigorous. Our fault today is laissez-faire, careless, I'll get to it when I get to it. So instead of having regular occasions and disciplined occasions of secret and family seasons of ingesting God's Word, sort of, well, if I get to it today, great. If I don't, I won't. But I'll get to it some other time. And so what happens is, similar to people who aren't disciplined in their eating habits, they snack on this, snack on that, and often on things that are less than the substantial provision of God's Word. Brethren, what's the point? It's not about the exercise merely of discipline. It's the exercise of discipline in order to feed our souls by the exercise of faith. So for instance, notice how this is brought out in 2 Peter. 2 Peter is much about the advance of personal godliness. And this is done, as Peter exhorts, by virtue of faith exercising itself upon promises. Verse 4, whereby, 2 Peter 1 verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See how there's a contrast? The promises are antithetical to the satisfying of worldly lusts. And so our souls will either be given to this carelessness or will be given to this careful taking up of God's recorded promises. But what do all the promises lead us to? They lead us all to Christ. And so you can see this in various places, but notice as one example, Hebrews and chapter 12. Here, we're being exhorted, interestingly, in the midst of an example filled chapter, chapter 11, of those who endured great hardship, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay every, aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Do you see the marks of discipline? We're taking off not just the sinful things. Do you see that? It's not just... <clears throat> that we're setting aside the sin which doth so easily beset us, verse 1, but every weight. We're disciplined to say, that's not helping my forward progress. I'm done with it. If it's not advancing my soul, what good is it? You say, well, that's pretty stringent. Well, the people who set world records in races are pretty stringent about what they wear and what they do. And we're running a race. A race that is saying, that's the most important thing. Now, we have no hesitation in saying sports are idolized today. But we can see various lessons gleaned from them. And this is something that Paul at. We take everything off that's not helping us run, notice the language, with endurance, the race that is set before us. It would be almost impossible for people a hundred years ago to imagine how seemingly weightless shoes for runners are today. 
It would be almost impossible to understand how those who ride bikes long distance can pick up their bike with their finger because of how weightless, relatively speaking, it is today. Why are they so concerned that there's no hindrance? Why is it that they do all of this aerodynamic training, shaping, testing? It's because they've got their mind on the race set before them and they are going to endure and hold up. And whatever can be jettisoned, let it be jettisoned. But notice, all of that is with this in it. Looking unto Jesus. You see, it's not the focus on, I'm denying this, I'm putting that off, I'm doing this. But it's rather, I've got my eye on Christ, and so everything that is going to hinder my keeping on with Him is being let go. For some of you, that may mean some subscriptions need to stop. For some of you, that may mean some activities need to be let go. Now, it's not for us to determine if they are lawful, what they should be, but it's for you to ask the question, is this helping me exercise my faith in Christ? Is this helping me run the course before me? Is this benefiting me, feeding my soul, and building me up in Christ? Because if we're to possess our souls, you hear this sort of thought in time management discussions. You know, you need to master your schedule or your schedule will master you. Well, the same is true with reference to spiritual disciplines. You need to be the one who is over, of course, under God, but over the activities of your soul or the activities will fundamentally take you this way, that way, and every other way. So if we're to possess and own and govern our souls, it will only be as our souls are fixed with an immovable fixation upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is only known to us by the Scriptures. This is why the Scriptures are paramount and most important for our souls. Because if faith is to trust and our souls are to lay hold of Christ, they must be much in the Scriptures. So, mothers, you who are instructing your children, praise God for that. Because you are being an instrument for their soul's good. And those of you who have done so, you've been instruments holding forth the Word of life. For those of you who have your routines, these are good. And yet for all of that, for mothers, for fathers, for individuals together, for whole congregations, we need to realize it's not just the activity. It is that our faith must be exercised in it. So don't pat yourself on the back if you can look at a habit chart and say, for the past six months, I've not missed a time of Bible reading. Whereas there's something, of course, good about that habit. It's insufficient if it's not a habit wherein your faith is being exercised upon Christ. That's what's needed. And so if you're thinking to yourselves, you know, I've so fallen off, I haven't read the Bible diligently and carefully and regularly for months, maybe years, maybe my whole life. I've sort of dipped in here, dipped in there. Yes, you need to establish the habit, but understand this, that habit will not cause you to possess your soul, especially when trial comes. It'll be a means by which your faith may trust in Christ. And it's Christ 
who as it were sustained you. So take use of the reading of God's Word to know, trust, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is fundamental. But secondly, if we're to maintain our souls, to possess them, especially in seasons of persecution, and brethren, perhaps just before fully closing that out, think for a moment the record of more recent days when men and women were in prison. You think of Corey Tenboom, you think of Richard Wormbrand, and others well known to you perhaps, others not so well known. And you think of how earnest they were for a word of God. And we hear of people in other places of the world today how earnest they are for a word of God. There's a famous minister in England, John Rogers, who saw in his own lifetime the proliferation of the Scriptures in the English tongue to his people. And then he saw the carelessness with which the people presumed upon God's Word. One of his famous sermons, he as it were cried out to God, take not your word from us with tears in his eyes. And then as if God were speaking, said, but you have profaned my word. You've been careless with my word. You don't care for my word. You presume upon my word. I'm taking it from you. Such a great and glorious treasure and you don't care for it. He would plead in the sermon, oh God, take it not from us. And the Lord, as it were, testifying, I'll give it to you, but treasure it. Brethren, is that not the case? We need to treasure His Word because there's no word like God's Word. Well, secondly then, we are to maintain our souls, to keep our souls in hope. Now, faith and hope, of course, are intimately related. You can't have hope, biblically speaking, except there be faith. But there is a distinction. So we think, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, charity, right? They're distinct, and yet they're obviously connected. What's the difference between faith and hope? Well, hope is particularly that expectation of those things which are to come. So it's not just trusting. It includes trusting. But it is now the eager expecting of it to come. So children, you can get it this way. Someone's coming to visit your house. Your mom's been cooking a meal or whatever else. And you're excited. You've cleaned the house, perhaps with some grudging. And now everything's ready. And you're asking your parents, but when are they going to come? When are they going to? Well, just sit there and look out the window. They're going to be here in the next five to ten minutes. And you're looking and watching and waiting. And you're what? You're eager. You're expecting that visit to come. That's what hope is. Hope is not just the trusting that it will come, but it's the expectation and the eager anticipation that it will. Notice, for instance, in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, you have some aspect of this presented to us with reference to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, notice at verse 57. After testifying of death, we read verse 57, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How can I do that? I'm going to die. How can I do that? Persecution's coming. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you see how this confidence 
as it were, inspires, strengthens diligence. And if you were to look at this whole chapter, you would see this with great abundance and clarity. So for instance, Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15, how it is in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. You see, all of this is eager within him. You can find perhaps no greater anticipation and eager hope than what is recorded in Revelation when John the Apostle hears Christ say, Behold, I come quickly. And what does John say? Yes, I know it. I've confessed that. I trust it. No, he says, Even so, come. That's my desire. I'm longing for it. Isn't this a case when those of you who are married or have children... You have a loved one, perhaps a child or a spouse, who's been away for a season, and they're coming home, or you're visiting them. Everything else is ignored. So you could be in a plane, they could be in a plane, there could be all sorts of fanfare going on all around you, great things, upheavals in the world, but your mind is fixed upon the loved one you're about to see again. That's the focus of hope. Hope is fixed upon the truth of what's to come. How does that relate to persecution? Well, remember, Christ has said in this period of time before the destruction of the temple, of course, applying as well to other seasons of persecution, you're going to be tested because hated for My name's sake. What does the soul possessed of their hope do? I know this is painful and real, but I eagerly anticipate what's going to come to me. I know that if my father, my own father, my mother who nursed me with her breast, who cared for me, who uh, uh, brought me up and all of these things, if she's the one who turned me over to the authorities, yet though my mother or father both should leave, the Lord will me uptake and He will not permit my soul to perish He will not permit my body to lie indefinitely in the grave. Though bodies should be ripped apart by the beasts of the field, or the sword should pierce through my own heart, yet this I know, that with my own eyes, I will see the glory of the Lord. So you can read this. This is part of the moving record of the martyrs. They testify of these things. You know, you hear stories... And there are too many to recount all of them. You know, my next sight will be the Lord of glory. My next sight. That's the next thing I see. You're about to lop off my head. That's your sin. My next sight is the glorious Lord. I'll see Him. And the next reality of my physical body will be that it will be transformed at the return of Christ to meet Him in the air, and ever be with the Lord. This is my hope. Does it deny the pain of persecution? It acknowledges the pain. It only goes further to acknowledge the greater glory that is the Christians to come. Notice, for instance, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, we have this quite simply put before us as Paul is speaking of a number of things, but he relates them to the return 
of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2 and at verse 14, notice, whereunto He called you by our Gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me get something clear in my own mind and in yours. Your hope is not a bigger house. It's not a bigger check. It's not a full bill of health. Those are mercies that the Lord may give, which we receive and give thanks to God. That's not the hope of your calling. Those things are far too small. If you're above you know, a child's age, who of you is satisfied with children's toys? You know, those hallways of various stores you used to walk through and say, Mom, can I get this? You look at them and say, why does anyone waste money on these things today? The best provision in this life is at best like a children's toy to the Christian. Because notice, we've been called to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you take away these trinkets, that does nothing to take away my hope of the glory that is to come. And notice what Paul says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. It's related, isn't it, to what Christ says. You know, in your patience, in your endurance, possess ye your souls. Hold the traditions, that which has been passed down in teaching, which you have been taught, whether by word or our our epistle. Notice, Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. What's the point? The promises aren't just to be, as it were, trusted and believed. They are. But they are to quicken us onto the eager expectation and longing for of those things. No engaged person looks upon the mark of their calendar of their wedding day, the honeymoon perhaps that follows and says, just another day, it'll come and go and it's over. There's eager anticipation, sometimes perhaps too much, sometimes they're making too much of it perhaps, but there's a reason for it. Such a change in the relationship is going to take place at the exchange of a vow that now they're husband and wife. Well, brethren, the Christian has that and far more when Christ returns. And it's not just, as it were, a future event. It is the longed-for consummation of all that we've enjoyed right now. What we've enjoyed right now is but a whisper, a promise, the first fruits of the full harvest of the joy of Christ to be experienced on that day. And that is what the Christian longs for. No, we don't deny that we long for health and life and a sufficient portion for us and our loved ones. We are taught to pray for those things. But we long for those subordinate to, underneath, the great longing of knowing and serving and seeing Christ. Brethren, if we keep our souls in the exercise of hope, By God's grace, we shall endure persecution as our forefathers did. And finally, and quickly related to these two, to keep and possess our own souls, we must do so by maintaining the practice of holiness. 
You see that in all that we've already said and read. The various texts that have been brought together. If there's faith, there will be the leading to holiness. If there's hope, there will be the leading to holiness. There will be the practice in the nitty-gritty of our lives of holiness. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our work ethic, in our places of work, in public, in private, in secret, in devotional things, in more you know, outward things. All of this will be dedicated to the Lord. Everything is oriented to Him. Striking, sometimes we think of the martyrs as otherworldly. That's because they were. But not in the superstitious ways of our world's thinking, but in the way that should be the experience of every believer. Paul writes this in Colossians 3, If then you've been risen with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your affection, your mind, upon things above and not on things of the earth. But isn't it interesting that immediately following that, there is this exhortation to what? Put to death your sin. You know, find out your lusts, slay them by the blood of Christ. Find out your carnality, see it put to death by the work of the Spirit. Put off the old man and the lusts thereof. Put on the new man and the righteousness thereof. Right? All of this flows from what? A heart and a mind that is set upon God in Christ above. In other words, where there's faith and our souls, as it were, maintaining that, where there's hope and an eager expectation for it, there will be holiness which follows after. Some people find out you know, that they are going to go on a trip and they're going to go overseas and perhaps it's down the road and so they start to learn about that place and perhaps they pick up the language And you might hear them reciting the language or seeing them talk about certain things about that culture. They're preparing for what they're about to experience. Brethren, do you realize that the Christian, how can we say it otherwise, is about to experience heaven? It's not long. You know, there are those now who can look back and say, you know, I thought that time passed slowly, but now I realize that it goes quickly. Every one of us will soon enough, apart from Christ returning, will be in the grave very soon. And our souls will be, if Christians, with the Lord forever. And soon enough, even if another thousands of years must pass between now and the return of Christ, soon enough in the grand scheme of history, the resurrection will happen. That's really going to come to pass. Well, if that's what is going to happen... Is it not the case that we should walk as citizens of heaven? It's interesting, you can read actually uh, correspondence between pagan men about Christians. And they actually have this documented after seasons of persecution came roughly in this era. They said, listen, there's no sense in trying to say to them, we're going to take your job from you. We're going to put your child to death. We're going to torture you. Because every avenue we take is utterly a failure. They don't renounce the faith of Christ. They don't turn from Him. They're willing to endure the most painful miseries because they trust and love this Savior, they say. That's the point. They were connected to Him 
They were embracing Him, and so their lives were given in holiness to Him, not willing to compromise so much as in hair's breadth from the way of truth. Close just with this reference and a few brief words. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice how this is mentioned in verses 18 and following. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is particular to immorality, of course. But the fundamental argument is true for every temptation. If we're to flee fornication because we are indwelt by God and we are bought with a price, therefore we're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are His, is that not the case with every other sin? That because we're His, because we belong to Him, we're to walk for Him. Notice the order. It's not we walk for Him so that we will be His. It's that we are His, therefore we walk for Him. We preserve, as it were, our course of holiness by remembering what we are by His grace. And this brings us full circle back to faith. We've trusted in Him. We trust His Word. And by this then, we're led to persevere in holiness. Well, brethren, the world despises Christ and His. And though the passage before us is particular to that era of persecution that would soon come upon His people, we'll see that there are words to follow which deal with time after the destruction of the temple and as God's Word elsewhere testifies, seasons of persecution come of various degrees and various sorts. But the counsel that Christ gave His disciples here is the same counsel that is given to Christians other places. We are to watch. We are to possess our souls in patience, endurance, keeping our faith fixed upon Christ. So there's talk sometimes with political upheavals and financial and economic distresses and we start to wonder at certain moral things that are taking place, is a season of persecution about to unleash itself upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And here's the simple fact. It may, it may not. We don't know. Scriptures do hold forth seasons of persecution still to come. The Scriptures do hold forth as well, which most of the church seems to ignore, a season of great blessing that is to come to the church. But whatever it is that's going to come, whether rich blessing or the most difficult of persecution, the counsel in this life is one and the same. Keep your souls fixed upon Christ, trusting Him, expecting Him, and walking with Him. And as you do that, if seasons of prosperity comes, you won't be led astray to make too much of the prosperity. If seasons of great persecution comes, you won't be overthrown with hopelessness. Christ believed, expected, and honored is the way to endure persecution. Indeed, it is the way 
to endure this world, whatever the circumstance. So brethren, keep hold of your soul by laying hold of Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?